In the aftermath of the July 1861 First Battle of Bull Run, American theologian and preacher Horace Bushnell commented, The true loyalty is never reached till the laws in the nation are made to appear sacred or somewhat more than human, and that will not be done until we have made a long, weary, terrible sacrifices for it. Without shedding of blood, there is no such grace prepared. There must be reverses and losses and times of deep concern. There must be tears in the houses as well as blood in the fields. The fathers and mothers, the wives and dear children coming into the woe to fight in hard bewailings. Desolated fields, prostrations of trade, discouragements of all kinds must be accepted with unfaltering, unsubduable patience. Religion must send up her cry out of houses, temples, closets, where faith groans heavily before God. In these and all such terrible throes the true loyalty is born. Then the nation emerges, at last, a true nation, consecrated and made great in our eyes by the sacrifices it has cost. So today on American History 2, we look at the role of religion and faith in the lead-up to and conduct of the American Civil War. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Dr Malcolm Craig as we begin a double bill on the American Civil War. Hello Malcolm. Yes, uh, I mean this week you know, we're looking back at kind of one of the truly defining moments in American history and I think you know, it's possible to argue that the Civil War is indeed the defining moment in American history, even more so than the Revolution. Uh, so, but in particular we're going to be discussing today the role of religion in this uh, transformative conflict and in order to help us through this and help us to understand this, we're des- delighted to welcome as a guest we've wanted to have on the show for quite some time now, uh, Dr Rachel Williams of Hull University. So Welcome, Rachel. And could you tell us briefly uh, about what your research specifically focuses on? Oh, thanks both. It's great to be with you. Um, and obviously, Malcolm, I echo entirely your sentiments that the Civil War is the, the, the seminal uh, event in American history, but I am a bit biased, obviously. Um, so my, my research is about an organization called the United States Christian Commission, which was uh, an evangelical civilian relief agency set up in the North during the uh, American Civil War, so primarily in places like Philadelphia and Boston, um, places that were real sort of hotbeds of, of, of religious activity. So it sort of comes out of the, the YMCA's really in the um, 1850s. You can see it as a maybe as a precursor to the American Red Cross. The Christian Commission sends volunteers. Um, it's estimated around 5,000 volunteers um, to the, the Northern Army for periods of around six weeks at a time uh, to minister to both the, the spiritual and the bodily needs of the Union troops, so trying to heal their bodies and also save their souls. So my research is really about how they go about doing that by distributing religious literature, by trying to encourage revivals, by handing out little sewing kits. So they really believe that you could heal and access the soul through the body. So if you make the body whole, then the soul will also be made whole and will be more receptive to God. So it's part of us of a longer history of philanthropy and of really civilian presence on the battlefield in wartime. Um, so the historiography often argues that the Civil War is a sort of turning point where America becomes sort of more bureaucratic, more managerial. Um, and I think that the Christian Commission potentially provides something of a, of a counter-narrative to that, that proposition. Cool. Fascinating. I never realised the role of sewing kits could have in American history. Oh, um, <laughs> um, and obviously I'm trying not to chafe against this description of the Civil War as the defining moment being a 20th century you know, person, but we'll, we'll go with it for the episode. Um, so to kind of begin with, I, I was hoping to establish um, what the kind of state in the, of religion is in the United States in the build up to the Civil War. I mean, sort of in my limited understanding, when America's founded, many of its founding fathers are in fact deists rather than, you know, devoted Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and yet um, by the end of the 19th century, you know, you've got you've, America seems to very much have emerged as a, as a Protestant nation um, trying to d- defend its values and you get nativism and all this kind of thing. So I'm really intrigued to know, like smack bang in the middle of that, what the overall influence and state of religion on American society was during the 1850s? Well, I think um, just to start off with, it's probably worth me stressing that uh, my expertise is really in American Christianity, um, but that doesn't necessarily encompass all of American religion. Um, You know, there's even in the antebellum period, 
a great deal of religious diversity in America. Um, most of this diversity does fall under that umbrella of Christianity, but of course we've got Native Americans with their own belief systems to a greater or lesser degree influenced by um, Christianity, uh, so degrees of hybridity and syncretism. Um, but there's also a growing Jewish community, there are also considerable numbers of Muslims in the United States um, in this period as well. Many of them are descendants of kidnapped West Africans, so for instance many of uh, the descendants of uh, Africans from the Senegambian region practice Islam um, in the uh, under slavery. Um, but my expertise is in Christianity, so I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so it's true that by the 19th century, the influence of uh, that sort of enlightenment, rational thought has begun to fade, um, and you see sort of homegrown denominations, more distinctly American denominations, beginning to establish some deep and distinctive roots. Um, so the fact that the church is disestablished uh, following independence, uh, that America is able to sort of cast off another oppressive relic of the of the old world, really, um, is really important and breeds, I think, a, a pervasive sort of anti-clericalism in the early republic. The idea, you know, that having priests, having ordained clergy telling you what to do, delivering the word of, of God from on high to 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 this congregation is really anathema to the um, democratizing impulse of the revolution. Um, but soon, as, as you intimated, these distinctly American denominations do begin to, to flourish, um, really because there is no established church, because religious freedom and toleration is written into the Bill of Rights. Uh, so American Christians have the freedom to, to splinter off, to experiment with uh, new worship styles, new theologies. Uh, America is really beginning to, to flex its muscles as, a, as an independent new nation, a young young nation. Uh, the antebellum period is a, an era of growth and expansion and innovation in so many realms of, uh, of American life, whether we're thinking about democracy, whether we're thinking about the economy, you know, the expansion of the canals, the expansion of American territory, the expansion of the American population. Even. So it makes sense that religion is going through that same process of innovation and expansion. It's also the truth, I think, that the, the rapid growth and modernization of the nation is seen as a, as a sign of God's favor, I think, that a sign that, yes, this, this is the redeemer nation, this, this is the new Israel that Americans were promised. Um, but of course, by the time we get to the 1850s, not everything is rosy. Um, this is a period of increasing political strife, increasing sectionalization as well. The nation's beginning to divide along that north-south line and religion is very much part of that story so in particular if we think about the slavery debates uh, religion is absolutely key to understanding those debates so on the one hand you've got the development and the articulation of pro-slavery religion so from things like biblical precedents the curse of ham which is often uh, interpreted as uh, an endorsement of slavery um, and also the sort of the social argument for slavery so the idea that uh, American slaveholders are doing their slaves a favor by Christianizing them, um, that they created this sort of perfect, harmonious society that is a, a counterpoint to the godlessness and the materiality and the ruthlessness um, of the North. And so um, one kind of period I find really fascinating in kind of like pre-Civil War America is this, the idea of the Second Great Awakening, this great kind of moment of uh, revivalism uh, in American religion from the, the 1790s onwards. I mean, what, what's the, the Second Great Awakening's influence on, on religion in America? And, and it, does it have much of an impact on the kind of long haul towards the Civil War? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. So the Second Great Awakening is this period of um, intense religious enthusiasm and regeneration in the United States. You see massive spikes in church attendance, uh, church membership, and really huge changes in how American Christians practice their religion. So we've got this shift in style from the very sort of staid, lengthy, um, intellectual, probably quite boring sermons on the sort of minutiae of, 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 of Christian doctrine um, to a much more sort of lively, much more extemporized, um, what we might think of a, as sort of fire and brimstone sermons. So people like Lorenzo Dow, Charles Grandison Finney are sort of riding up and down the country, um, really spreading the word of God in a very exciting, dynamic way. And these radical preachers often come from, from the West. They're often associated with these new, more populist denominations. Um, the Methodists, for instance, that's sort of shaking things up. Um, so these revival meetings are a, a huge hallmark of that period of religious awakening, often held outside 
Um, a famous early example of a revival meeting is the big uh, revival at Cambridge in Kentucky, um, where approximately 25,000 people gathered in 1801. So these are huge sort of gatherings of people meeting together, worshipping for hours, sometimes days on end, uh, and listening to these really passionate exhortations from the preachers. You know, people are crying out, they're falling on the ground, sometimes even speaking in tongues. Um, so there are also big sort of theological shifts that go along with this uh, sort of social democratization of Christianity. Um, so from the sort of Calvinist predestination uh, of the 18th century, you know, you're either saved or you're damned and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, by the 19th century, we've seen that become a little bit more sort of moderate, a bit more, uh, a bit softer, really. Um, the idea of universal salvation, the possibility of universal salvation is on the table uh, for the first time. So everyone can theoretically be saved. Um, it's not preordained. So there's still this emphasis on the, the saving grace of God. You can't earn your way into heaven, but you can make yourself more open to receiving that grace through the way that you worship. Um, so the, the Second Great Awakening really manifests itself quite differently in the North and the South. So in the South, religion is very much about the internal and the private. Um, it's very much about focusing on your own spiritual health and very much, of course, concentrated on shoring up the institution of slavery. Um, and in the North, it's it's really very different. So the, the Second Great Awakening also brings about this idea of perfectionism, the idea that humanity can be perfected, can be remade in God's image, um, can be completely cleansed of sin. Um, and there are groups of Northern reformers that set out to, to do just that. Um, we've got this growth of moral reform movements in the antebellum period, trying to cleanse the nation of sin, um, whether it's eradicating drunkenness, um, eradicating dueling, um, getting rid of delivering the post on a Sunday, getting rid of prostitution, or getting rid of slavery is the, is the ultimate sin of, of, of the nation in the view of many organists. Um, and there are organizations also set up to aggressively proselytize to, to the unredeemed of the nation. Yeah, and I, I was just wondering to sort of pick up you when you, when you touched on sort of the Southern church's role um, in, in sort of affirming slavery. Um, and I was wondering if you could just speak a wee bit more about it, because I've always found it quite fascinating that here you have, you know, you read some of the sermons and stuff that, that they were preached to slaves by, mm -hmm. by Baptist ministers and, and how they really somehow tried to justify it to, you know, that this was God's way. And I was wondering if you could maybe just speak a wee bit about that and, and how that affected sort of slavery. How it reaffirmed slavery in the South, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's always so interesting to think that the the the, the religion that's being preached to uh, to enslaved people is very different from the religion that they themselves are worshiping and following. Um, slave religion often focuses very much on uh, stories of deliverance, so the, the delivery of the, the Israelite slaves from um, from bondage in Egypt the story of Exodus, for instance. Um, and that's very different from the, uh, the slaveholders' version of religion, which is very much about docility, about obedience to your master, um, about being part of this uh, hierarchical community that's somehow socially harmonious in the view of the slaveholders, of course. Um, so there's very much a sense that um, religion in the South is all about shoring up that system. Um, and the, the, the preachers, many of whom are not slave owners themselves, um, but preachers are very much sort of towing that party line of the fact that, that slavery is something that is a positive good, um, something that is good for all people in, society, in, in, white, in white and black society. Um, it's not only good for, for slave owners, but it's good for uh, the enslaved people as well, that it's um, supporting the entire edifice, essentially, uh, and that there are biblical precedents for this that they, they keep looking back to um, and using to reaffirm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of find it also, you know, fascinating that in this kind of anti-Bellum area where you see this great, you know, diversification kind of in, in American faith as well. You know, so like we have Mormonism, you know, appearing on the scene and there's this kind of big rise in the number of adherents to Catholicism in America. I mean, which I mean, mostly explained by, you know, the increased levels of immigration from Catholic countries such as Ireland and, and Germany. I find it really mm -hmm. fascinating. Andrew Preston uh, and his wonderful book, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, he he talks about the the sheer extent of religion in America. So he said that in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, there were four times as many churchgoers as there were voters in the 1860 presidential election, twice as many clergy as there were military personnel. There were 35 churches for every bank, 
and the income of the nation's churches nearly equaled that of the federal government. And I think that just that I mean really illustrates the remarkable extent and and penetration of religion into into American life in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and actually, I was gonna, I wanted to pick up something Rachel actually said in the in answer to our first question when you're talking about, you know, the separation of church and state, meaning there is no state religion, and um, that there is no official religion. And I was just wondering, I mean, I know there's this sort of theory, and I'm sure I heard this two or three years ago now, I can't actually remember who it was, that, you know, American religion is, retains a lot of vitality even to the present day because unlike in European countries where they were given a religion you had to follow, in America you almost had, like, you know, capitalism for religion. You could go out and choose whatever you wanted. Is, is that sort of a, a theory that you think deserves much weight or, or is that just quite a spurious assertion? No, I think there's something to that, definitely. Um, I think it does generate a, a dynamism um, and a, it, it allows for religion to be somehow sustainable and um, to, to sort of replicate itself as well. Um, but I think it also leads to a certain to fragmentation um, and an atomization. So throughout the 19th century, there's all, and, and, you know, to the present day, American sects are constantly splitting into smaller and smaller groups, smaller and smaller sort of sections as they fall out over various issues of doctrine um, or, or, or practice. Um, so as well as sort of creating a vitality um, and a, sort of a democratization of American Christianity, I think it also leads to a certain fragmentation as well i mean yeah i mean it's kind of fascinating the, you know the comment that this is this kind of the kind of free market of ideas and a free market and religion but it always i mean strikes me as, as you alluded to there rachel that it's not so much a free market for a religion it's a free market for different forms of protestant christianity considering the, yeah, the, the ongoing marginalization of american catholics for a long period of time persistent anti-semitism and all, and all these kind of things uh, that we'll, we'll come on to when we talk about about the the civil civil war itself but uh, yeah i mean it's, it's fascinating that you have this this marketplace for religion but it is in many ways circumscribed yeah i absolutely agree um i think the there are definitely boundaries within which that religious toleration is allowed to occupy, it is allowed to operate uh, and to flourish, and there are certain limits to that. Um, and I think uh, the example of anti-Semitism and, and anti-Catholicism are really perfect examples in, in, in the mid-19th century and going forward into the early 20th. Yeah, no, that was, that was fascinating to hear your take on it. So, 1850s out of the way, we're into 1860s, Abraham Lincoln wins election, you know, South Carolina secedes, Fort Sumter, we're off to the races, Civil War, here we come. Well, that was the um, quickest introduction to the American Civil War ever. That's all you need to that, know. That, 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 that is a snippet from one of my lectures on American history. Um, no, so in terms of uh, how, how much was the adoption of religious reasons for fighting the war on both sides, North and South? sort of key to garnering popular support for, for the war effort, you know, was framing the conflict in terms of moral, religious absolutes as a, as both sides often did, was, was it successful for, for recruitment? Um, I'm not sure how much of a role it had in sort of recruiting the, the, the masses, or it's more the fact that uh, nation and God become so closely intertwined and, have been for so long that um, serving nation and serving God becomes one and the same. They're sort of inextricable. Um, but certainly both sides see their, see their cause as ordained and blessed by God as somehow a, a divine mission um, and are praying for providential blessing throughout the war. Um, so in the Confederacy, we see the election of Lincoln, um, which he so wonderfully described, really opening the floodgates for, you know, those religious defences of slavery and, and of secession as well. So um, if I may, I've got a quote here from a sermon by Benjamin Palmer, um, who's a Presbyterian minister from Louisiana, who's a real ardent defender of slavery and a, uh, one of the big proponents of secession. Um, so he's preaching this sermon just a few days after Lincoln's election. And he said, last of all, in this great struggle, we defend the cause of God and religion. The abolition spirit is undeniably atheistic. The Most High, knowing his own power, which is infinite, and his own wisdom, which is unfathomable, can afford to be patient. But these self-constituted reformers, so the, uh, the abolitionists, must quicken the activity of Jehovah or compel his abdication. In their furious haste, they trample upon obligations sacred of any which can bind the conscience. It is time to reproduce the obsolete idea that providence must govern man, 
and not that man shall control providence. Um, so they're clearly casting the Confederacy as the true, sacred, righteous cause of God um, and the, the opposite side, uh, fellow Americans or former countrymen, um, as, as somehow unreligious, um, ungodly. Uh, and we can see this quite clearly uh, in the Confederate Constitution, which is modelled on the US Constitution, but the preamble has um, a significant difference in that it inserts the phrase, invoking the favour and guidance of Almighty God, um, to ordain and establish the Constitution for the Confederate States of America. So the Confederacy is very consciously setting itself up as a religious nation, as a, as a nation um, which is reverting to the religious ideals that America, the United States of America, um, have, have led the nation astray on, really. Um, so uh, Jefferson Davis proclaims a, a day of fasting, of thanksgiving, very early on in the war to sort of consecrate the nation, um, to, to sacralise it in a way. And Andrew Preston kind of like really interestingly argues uh, in the chapter in his book that looks at the kind of, I mean, the, the complexities of, of Abraham Lincoln's relationship uh, with religion. He talks about the, the civil war for the North becoming what he describes as the first war of humanitarian intervention, a, a humanitarian intervention that's fundamentally founded in this religious impulse. To, I mean, how much would you agree with that description of the Civil War being a kind of, for the North, a war of humanitarian intervention? Um, well, first of all, I think that's quite a sort of American-centric way of looking at it. I'd argue that the first war of humanitarian intervention could be the Crimea. Um, but um, it depends how you read that, whether it's in terms of intervening to save enslaved people to free them from bondage um, or whether it's about the role of government in war and what that role should be um, the the war doesn't really become a war about freeing the slaves uh, until of course the emancipation proclamation is is passed in in 1863 um, and even then it's arguable whether whether it's a humanitarian concern for enslaved people that drives that decision um, or whether it's it's a political and military concerns um, but certainly the war in terms of developing humanitarianism and philanthropy as an impulse uh, does have, a, have an important role to play, I think, in terms of thinking about, as I said, what the role of government should be in terms of um, medicine, uh, in terms of what the role of the government should be in caring for, locating, burying, venerating uh, dead bodies, uh, in terms of providing the spiritual needs of the army. Um, so we can see the the civil war really as a as a precursor to things like the Red Cross and uh, the more the better established army chaplaincy later in the in the world wars. Um, so I think it depends how you interpret that statement, really. You know, and I was just wondering. So we um, the the one of the first podcasts we ever did way back a couple of years ago when we looked at the American Civil War, we we looked at the the people in the North who were actually actively against um, the Civil War. And uh, and one of the the events we sort of looked at was the New York draft riots, and I was wondering if it's if it's no coincidence that 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 New York, you know, with its heavy immigrant populations, many of whom would have been Irish Catholic or perhaps you know, uh, you know, Eastern European Catholic, what was it any coincidence that they're a hotbed of dissent against the war, framed on this sort of Protestant evangelical terms. Yeah, I think there, there certainly is something there. And I think we've been talking, um, alluding to this longer history of anti-Catholicism in the United States, which has become particularly virulent in the 1840s and 50s in response to these large numbers um, of Irish Catholic immigrants, you know, fleeing the potato famine, um, coming to cities like Boston and New York and Philadelphia and so on. And they tend to be poor, unskilled workers clustering in you know, manual labour and domestic service and so on. Um, and this really fuels a great deal of negativity, uh, negative stereotypes about Irish Catholics, and also these uh, amazing conspiracy theories about, you know, Vatican plots to take over the country, to indoctrinate and brainwash American youth and so on. This really sort of nasty stuff um, leading to sort of anti-immigrant riots in the 1840s in many cities and the de development of the, uh, the Know-Nothing Party in the 1850s, that avowedly nativist, anti-Catholic um, party. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of the uh, know-nothings are actually absorbed into the Republican Party. So it's, I've always thought it was a bit rich for the Republicans then to, to ask Irish Catholics to, to help them fight the war, given um, their, their roots in, in some of this nativist sentiment themselves. Um, the Irish Catholics are 
pretty solidly Democrat in their, in their um, political affiliations in this period, uh, the Democrats being the party of the, the white working man, um, and they're actively being courted by city machines. So I don't know if you've seen that scene in Gangs of New York where they're coming off the boats from Ireland and being signed up to vote for the Democrats and then being shipped off to, to, to fight for the union in Tennessee and so on. Um, but voting Democrat doesn't, doesn't mean that they don't support the war. Um, many Irish Catholics do see it as a chance to, to earn their rights to be to treated as full citizens. Um, Irish Catholics make up a significant portion of the, of, the, of the Union Army and they're commended for their part in the conflict. Um, but certainly I think we can't see the draft riots as just a class issue or just a race issue. It's not just about white working class men refusing to, to fight for black men to be free. It's not just about poor men refusing to fight in the place of rich men. We definitely need to add religion into the mix to, um, to think about how uh, Irish immigrants in particular have faced this long history uh, of persecution and how they're trying to insert themselves into this narrative of citizenship, uh, often at the expense of African-Americans. I think it's also important to con- you know, consider as well as the kind of the much larger you know, Catholic population in the United States, the, the much significantly smaller Jewish population in the United States. I mean, there's not going to be kind of mass Jewish emigration to the United States for, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a, there's a small but significant Jewish population. And I find it you know fascinating, the incidences of, of anti-Semitism uh, in the Civil War. I mean, I think the most no- notable and notorious one is, is Ulysses S. Grant's you know, General Order Number 11, uh, where he, because of a belief that, that Jews, as he describes them, as a class, uh, are profiting from Southern cotton smuggling, and you're harking back to very traditional ideas about kind of traditional anti-Semitic ideas about, uh, about you know about Jewish people and money and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he, General Order Number Eleven, you know, uh, bans them. And expels them from uh, areas under the the control of the Union Army, Mississippi, and like quite big chunks of of Tennessee. And it takes Abraham Lincoln when he finds out about this general order to to basically rescind it. Uh, but it's it's kind of fascinating to you know to realise that there is this kind of undercurrent of not just anti-Catholicism in America at the time, but you know much more traditionalist uh, you know anti-Semitism of, of a kind we've seen for many hundreds hundreds of years. I think there are uh, more positive stories about um, Judaism in the United States in the Civil War as well. Uh, for the first time, rabbis are commissioned as chaplains in the Union Army, for instance, so there's the recognition that um, Jewish soldiers are, have spiritual needs and deserve to have those ministered to. Um, and of course, one of the, the most competent um, Confederate statesmen is Judah Benjamin, who serves basically, I think, in more or less every um, capacity, every every office in the Confederate cabinet. You know, he's Attorney General, he's Secretary of War, Secretary of State at some point. Um, so he's a real sort of a, a, a prominent um, Jewish person in, in, in Confederate life. So there's, there's definitely um, that Judaism does have a have a have a, a place to play in the in the life of the nation. Um, but you're absolutely right, Malcolm, that the, already we're beginning to see the seeds of what's going to become a much more um, virulent um, and destructive anti-Semitism um, as the century wears on and into the, the 20th century. Cool. So turning our attention to the to the South, and uh, and it was really interesting. You were saying how their their constitution was was written in a different way to to, to sort of reflect the religious element. But I mean, I, I, Stonewall Jackson, one of the, the great generals of the of the Civil War, and he was in it. He's sort of talking about how underwhelmed he was by the lack of religious influence in the Southern cause. You know, he said, "quote I am afraid that our people are looking to the wrong source for help and ascribing our successes to those whom they are not due. If we fail to trust in God and to give Him all the glory, our cause is ruined. Give it to our friends at home. Due warning on this subject." So you've got Jackson saying like things on like that on the one hand, and yet on the other, like across both armies in the Civil War, you've got this huge rise of the military chaplaincy, um, and it's estimated that on the front line or, or in the armies themselves, you have religious revivals that convert about 5 to 10% of the men in uniform. So which do you see as the more accurate depiction of of of? of how religion featured on the front line. Was it a boon for religious faith or was it pushed aside in the midst of battle? 
Oh, I love that quote from Stonewall Jackson. I don't think Jackson would have been happy, uh, you know, un unless everybody was was praying at the same time every day and so on. <laughs> the standards were probably pretty high for uh, the religiosity in the army. But there is that old saying, isn't there? You know, no atheists in foxholes, right? And I think that's certainly true in some cases for the Civil War. Um, and you see chaplains and um, preachers with organisations like the Christian Commission sort of complaining or expressing doubts about the sincerity of some of the religious conversions that they've seen, you know, the suspicion that men are just covering their bases just in case they're killed, um, or <laughs> suspecting that their thoughts are naturally turning to the question of their own mortality when they're faced with some mortal peril. Um, but there's also a sense that, that religion can help, um, can be a way of coping, um, a genuine way of coping with the, the stresses and the traumas of, of, of battle. So it certainly makes it easier to, to face enemy guns if you're confident that eternal life, that heavenly rewards are awaiting you. Um, and I think also it's, it's important that the, to, to note that the rhetoric of the war on both sides really makes it um, easier for American soldiers to, to cast their fellow Americans as the enemy, to, to envisage them as somehow not religious, not blessed by God, um, as tools of the devil in some cases. So that, there's, an, there's a suspicion that that maybe makes it easier to kill them potentially. That's just my own um, reading. Um, but I think, I think thinking about the people that I've been researching, I think the Christian Commission delegates would probably agree with Jackson, even though they're on the opposite side. They're often expressing a great deal of despair at the, the overall sort of godlessness of the armies, you know, this immoral and irreligious behavior that seems to, to grasp these young men. You know, they're playing cards, they're gambling, swearing, not observing the Sabbath, they're visiting brothels and all this sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I would argue that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not religious, but in the eyes of the uh, religious worldview of the, the 1860s, that doesn't seem to, to count. Um, the Christian Commission do find, though, that the, 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 field is a, the field of the army is a pretty ripe field of harvest for conversion. I think the overwhelming experience of soldiers during the Civil War is extreme boredom. I think that's true of, of, of many conflicts. They're bored. They want something to read. Um, so the Christian Commission and other um, religious groups are making sure that they get their hands on a Bible or a tract rather than, uh, you know, a book of filthy poems or um, a newspaper or whatever. Um, so they see it as a good opportunity to, to minister to the army. They've got a bit of a captive audience in that way. Um, but... I think it's certainly, despite that, that cynicism, it's certainly true that for some, the experience of war does sort of catalyze or um, reinvigorate their Christian faith. And this is particularly true in the, the Southern Army. So there are these huge, very famous religious revivals that sweep the Southern Army uh, in the winter of 1863 and 64 and continue sporadically to the end of the war, um, in which tens of thousands of men are reportedly converted or renew their faith. Uh, and obviously it's hard to know whether that sticks, um, whether soldiers who convert in the army backslide uh, in peacetime is certainly a possibility. Um, but I think there is a, especially in the South. Um, yeah, and just to sort of follow up, especially on the South, um, you know, I remember reading a, a quote by a, a brigadier general in Robert, Robert E. Lee's army, and he sort of thought that religion had, had paralyzed Southerners more than energized them. He describes it as a serious incubus upon us that, that during the whole war, our president and many of our generals really and actually believed there was this mysterious providence always hovering over the field, ready to interfere on our side. And, you know, that struck me as a really sort of interesting way to, to, to look at the role of religion. But I don't know whether, do you, do you think it really plays into the sort of lost cause idea? I don't think it would go so far as to say that religion loses the Confederacy, the war. Um, but certainly... It's a way, um, the fact that these religious revivals do begin um, some blossoming in the Southern Army, uh, do indicate that men are looking for uh, a sort of higher meaning in their, in their efforts and in their sacrifices. Um, that if they're no longer hoping for a military victory on earth, they're beginning to look for a, a spiritual victory, a moral victory in, in some way. So it does certainly fuel this debate about whether this involves a certain fatalism, a certain defeatism, you know, we can't do anything to alter God's will, um, therefore we're going to hand ourselves over to him totally. Um, but I think it's more about religion being a way for Confederate soldiers to, to deal with defeat and to deal with their suffering and to rationalise their efforts, to give it some sort of broader, weightier, um, loftier meaning um, and you're, you're right, I think that after Appomattox, this does sort of fuel that sort of lost cause interpretation of Confederate beat, um, which is very much about 
romanticizing the South, romanticizing the Confederate cause and imbuing it with this air of um, noble tragedy. Uh, and of course, the Confederacy gets their own martyr in Stonewall Jackson, this um, religious figure um, who's killed at Chancellorsville in 1863. So that, that lost cause really mixes together honesty, uh, uh, sorry, honor and piety and fatalism, um, and of course, that maintenance um, of the belief in a, in a racial hierarchy. Um, so I've got quite a good quote here from actually a Roman Catholic priest, interestingly, from the South, um, Abram Ryan. Um, he talks about how the South is really consecrated by sorrow, by defeat. Um, Calvaries and crucifixions take the deepest hold of humanity. The sufferings of the right are graven deepest on the chronicle of nations. So the idea that there's something um, deeply profound um, and noble in the, the defeat of the South and that this has religious connotations as well. So if I may turn for a moment back to let us look north. We've had a kind of really good discussion there about, about the South and the, the role of religion for, for the Southern cause and the lost cause and all these kind of things. So in your research, you've got a particular interest in the role and influence of kind of American evangelicals, the Christian Commission and all this kind of stuff in the Civil War. Given the confusing and really quite complex nature of Protestant religion in America in this period, what do we mean when we're talking about evangelicals? What do we mean by it, and who are we talking about? Well, there's a, a scholar called David Bevington, who's um, actually a scholar of uh, English evangelicalism, but he's got a pretty uh, nifty definition. He calls it the Bevington quadrilateral, um, and it goes like this: so, first of all, crucicentrism, uh, which is a belief in the atoning death of Christ; biblicism, a commitment to the spiritual truths that are laid out in Scripture. Um, activism, which is the, the public sort of social expression and performance of Christ's teachings, uh, and conversionism, so this central importance of undergoing uh, a sort of a crisis, uh, a climax of, 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 of religious experience, um, what we think today of as being born again in the grace of God. Um, so the evangelicals really believe in uh, living a life that's guided by the Holy Spirit, um, living a life of personal and social purity, of holiness, um, that basically sounds like any Christian, any Christian sect, really, doesn't it? Um, but the important feature of evangelicalism, the thing that sort of sets it apart from other Christian sects, is this idea of conversion, this idea that you have to go through this conversion-like experience. You have to be born again in the spirit. You have to undergo this climax, which follows this period of conviction, um, where the penitent sinner sort of struggles towards faith. Um, and one, then once you've undergone that conversion, then you should yourself be filled with this inexorable urge to go out and spread that to the people around you. You should be actively and persistently seeking converts um, by evangelizing to the world. So this culture of re revivalism that we see in the antebellum period is basically all about this, all about conversion. Um, American revivalists believe that by putting pressure on people, public pressure on people, on people's souls, that you can really curtail uh, and compress that period of conviction and urge people towards that final conversion experience. Um, so we definitely have a sort of a fixed idea of evangelicals um, in our mind today based on uh, really, I suppose, the association with the, the, the modern day uh, religious right. Um, but in the 19th century, it's really quite different. Um, you've got, I mean, there are uh, certain denominations that have evangelical sects or have evangelical elements, so the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians are probably the four most prominent. Um, and all of these are very much involved, especially in the North, in these social reform movements that I've been talking about, things like temperance, um, things like Sabbatarianism and so on. So it's a very sort of socially active version of evangelicalism, especially in the North. I mean, that's really, that's incredibly useful to, to hear that, because, I mean, you're dead right whenever I think of evangelical religion in America, I think of, like, Jerry Falwell, and the moral majority and the, the religious right that emerges from the 1970s and into the 1980s. So it's really good to kind of get that understanding of what it means within the context of the, the mid-19th century. So seeing as your research focuses quite a lot on, on the, the Christian commission and other kind of aspects of, you know, the evangelical, you know, faith groupings within the Civil War, what role do they play? Obviously, we'd like to hear a bit more about the Christian commission, but were they also lining up to, to join the fight? protesting against the conflict and you know as well as this providing succor and assistance uh, on the home front and on the battlefront through the, the christian commission i would say that the evangelical churches on both sides are really um largely in favor of the war um whatever their qualms may have been beforehand uh, they show none of that squeamishness that you might expect from religious groups about bloodshed about violence and so on 
Um, they both, on both sides, you've got evangelical preachers really extolling their version of the war, um, both seeing it as this sort of sacred mission, this duty. Um, they, they play an important role, really, in, in framing the war as a religious conflict, as a conflict that's ordained by God. Uh, and obviously this, this, this interpretation is drastically different depending on which side of the conflict they're on. Um, so for the North, often they interpret the, the war as a punishment from God against the South for the sin of slavery. Um, the other way around, of course, it's seen as a punishment against the North for their godless ways. Um, but a lot of Northern evangelicals actually interpret the war as a punishment against the whole country for its various sins, um, including the fact that uh, the, 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 the North is also complicit in continuing and endorsing and uh, sort of cooperating with slavery. Uh, but it's also sort of interpreted sort of more optimistically as a sign that the, that the apocalypse is approaching, that the nation is moving closer towards a crisis, towards the sort of impending millennium, um, that the civil war is this sort of perfect opportunity to, to rid the nation of sin uh, and get one step closer to the second coming. So this is a, a post-millennial um, eschatological reading of the, of the civil war, really. So the, the northern evangelicals that I've been researching have developed this really gory rhetoric of blood sacrifice in interpreting the civil war. So they basically have this idea that the, the blood of the slain soldiers who are, you know, laying themselves down on the altar of the nation, these sacrificial martyrs, their blood is sort of washing the nation clean and atoning for the sins of the nation. Um, there's this ritual of rebirth that's taking place during the war. Uh, and you can see, you know, some of the popular songs and hymns um, sort of really reflecting that apocalyptic framework of, sort of blood atonement. Um, so uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, that sort of thing. So the, the logical extension of that in the Christian Commission's worldview is to say that the soldiers are not just dying, but they're dying like Christ, essentially. You know, Christ died for the sins of the world, so Union soldiers are dying for the sins of the nation. Um, like that line from the, the Battle of the Republic, uh, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. Um, of course, the Union gets its very own Christ figure um, on Good Friday of 1865 when Lincoln is assassinated. Um, it's probably worth saying that quite a lot of the Christian Commission preachers are not super happy about the fact that their president is in the theatre um, on Good Friday. But that's a, beside the point. They've managed to put that aside. Okay, focus on the big issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, look, looking back um, uh, at the role of religion in the Civil War overall, uh, kind of starting to draw this the podcast to an end, I mean, the, Alan Guelzo makes the argument and I've got no idea if that's how to pronounce his name, but Alan also makes the argument that, quote, instead of American religion corrupting the Civil War with absolutism, it is more possible to say that the Civil War corrupted American religion. And he's sort of contesting that the shortcomings of, of religion uh, during the Civil War, uh, that, you know, the conflict meant that American religion would be found wanting when it came to great societal issues in the future, such as race and poverty. And I think, you know, he's arguing from a liberal perspective that religion would be found wanting on these issues. Is, is, this, a, is this a claim that you would agree of, or is it extrapo extrapolating too much from, uh, from what went on during the Civil War? I think there is certainly a, something of a retreat um, from political discourse in terms of American religion um, after the, the, the Civil War. Um, and it's certainly true that religious groups give up on Reconstruction pretty depressingly quickly, uh, especially once the Freedmen's Bureau is really gutted of its of its financial and, and, and federal support. Um, but I think we can see American Christians devoting themselves to social issues in the in the Gilded Age, in the Progressive Era. So if we think about the, the social gospel movement, for instance, um, several of the prominent spokespeople from that movement were actually Christian Commission delegates. So it includes a cut their teeth um, in, in terms of social justice and, uh, and social activism in the Civil War. Um, we see the social gospel trying to improve urban life, trying to regulate business, trying to you know, introduce elements of what we might even call Christian socialism uh, into American life. Um, and we see developments of things like the American Red Cross. Um, but we also see American Christianity going in some rather more alarming directions. Um, obviously, the Ku Klux Klan is a particularly um, prominent example. Um, but if we think about things like uh, the muscular Christianity movement at the end of the 19th century, this combination of piety and physical vigor, people like um, Theodore Roosevelt 
and his strenuous life idea. Um, this really feels a, a sort of a martial, jingoistic, um, white supremacist culture, I suppose, at the end of the, the 19th century that really feeds into things like the Spanish-American War. Uh, we see the proliferation of foreign missionary work uh, in the late 19th century as well, and it depends which way you're coming from, whether you see that as a good thing or a bad thing. But for me, it seems to perpetuate some of these racist assumptions about the superiority of white versions of civilization, white Christianity, and so on. Um, I think it's important that although African-American rights um, and the, the, the problems of freedom and emancipation, although that does fall off the radar for many white Christians, um, if we think about the growth of uh, African-American Christianity after the Civil War, this is where we maybe see um, the real, uh, the, the more positive story, um, that religion isn't a source of just of, of spiritual and emotional support for enslaved and then emancipated people, um, but it also becomes a, a, a practical support as well. Um, the role of black churches in supporting free people and setting up education and so on uh, and in providing a voice for African-Americans is, is pretty significant. And of course, then if we fast forward, um, you know, the best part of the century, we see the important role of, of the black churches in the civil rights movement. Um, so I think by focusing just on white, white Christianity, um, Guelta's interpretation is, is, is maybe convincing, but if we broaden the, broaden the, the net a little bit, um, it becomes a, a more positive story. So, I mean, is it the case, kind of like drawing from, from that, is it, is it the case, do you think, that the civil, the civil war is a kind of a fundamental moment that really, on a very deep level, affects the, the course of, of religion in America? You know, for example, this the intensification of faith that you know we've seen emerging from the Second Great Awakening is really, really intensified by the Civil War, and and the war itself, I mean, deeply affects this course and kind of direction of of religion in America. Is that a fair statement, or would you would you challenge that and expand upon it? Oh, I mean, I suppose as a scholar of religion, I should probably be you know claiming that it's the be all and end all and so on. But I think probably um, actually the Civil War maybe decenters religion in, or, or contributes to a, a, a longer history of decentering religion in, in American social and political life to a certain extent. Um, I mean, but there, there are exceptions to this, obviously. We've talked about the, the, the lost cause and the, um, the growth of a, a religious interpretation of the and, and justification of the Civil War for many Southerners. Um, but I think there are certain cultural changes and cultural um, shifts after the Civil War uh, that do do demonstrate that the role of religion in the conflict um, is important uh, and has a, an afterlife after the, the conflict. So if you think about, um, there's been a lot of literature about the culture of death and dying in the Civil War, if you think about the, the literature, the, the work of um, Drew Faust, for instance. Um, and I think the role of religion in helping people come to terms with this astronomical loss of life um, that scars the nation during the conflict um, can't be underestimated. So people start thinking about, well, what does heaven look like? Um, do we look like ourselves in heaven? Do we look like how we looked when we died, potentially pulverized by a cannonball? Or do we look like our best selves, our healthier selves? Will we see our families again, even though we died hundreds of miles away um, in a field in Virginia? Um, and, and this... Um, this also generates the rise of things like the spiritualist religious movement um, in the in the decades after the, the Civil War. Something that's um, really uh, also seen after the the First World War too. Um, the idea of people finding succour in the idea that there is an afterlife, that there is a way to communicate with those who have passed. Um, so I, the the thing that I don't think we do see after the Civil War, which is quite interesting, I don't think we see or I've not been able to, to detect um, a, a sort of a wavering or a decline in religious belief necessarily. Um, so there's not the sense that, you know, there can't be a God because God wouldn't allow this suffering, uh, maybe on an individual scale, but not on a massive scale that I've been able to, to detect. Um, I think that the war does, for many people, reaffirm the sort of inscrutability of God's purpose and design. Um, but if there is a narrative about religion and American society, um, and American politics and the Civil War, it's maybe that those become uh, sort of more detached uh, af after after the conflict. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still struggling to get in my head when you said that it was sometimes viewed as a moral, like a sort of purification process, and that like juxtaposed with the image of the Battle of Cold Harbor in my head. Mm, yeah, like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a rather it's a rather sketchy argument. Um, it's pretty bloodthirsty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I have to say, I knew almost nothing about this topic beforehand, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. Um, so, I mean, thank you so much for for coming on to talk to us, Rachel. It, it was really enlightening. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And I appreciate, Mark, your pun at the end there. Enlightening. Indeed, very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, yes, uh, that, thank you, Rachel. That was, uh, that was really fantastic. Uh, and a kind of great uh, part one of our Civil War double header over for next month as well. Yeah, in fact, can you help us with a sneak preview of, of next uh, month? So, Rachel, next month? we're talking about abraham lincoln um and uh we're going to be on with uh, someone I'd, I'd describe as a fangirl of of lincoln <laughs> as someone who studied the, the civil war what what is your view of honest abe oh i'm a big fan as well actually um <laughs> i probably shouldn't be but, but i am very much um uh, i i recently read george saunders's new novel lincoln in the bardo uh, which uh, for me really does get into lincoln's psyche and his his, his very sort of tragic um, quite inscrutable personality, um, and and his religious belief is part of what fascinates me about him. Really, that he doesn't have uh, an overt commitment to a to a religious um, sect or a particular church, but that he still has these uh, very complex, constantly shifting uh, opinions about providence, about God's purposes, often influenced by his own tragic. Uh, life story, in, in, in particular the death of his young son during the Civil War and how this really brings home to him the, the, the fact that he's sending young men off to die uh, for, for this idea of the Union. Um, so yeah, I find, I find Lincoln endlessly fascinating um, and despite his, his problematic bits, um, probably my favourite president. And so next, okay. next, uh, next time we're going to be talking about not just Lincoln himself, but Lincoln in American memory which I think is important and how Lincoln has been deployed and used and and what Lincoln's legacy is for the United States up to the present day. So I think this provides a brilliant, uh, a brilliant jumping off point uh, for that discussion. Indeed. So thank you very much again, Rachel. And thank you very much, Malcolm. And uh, thanks again, listener. We'll see you or you'll hear from us in a month's time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Corner